I've got a lot of notes here, but I think this message is quick. I, I want to just tell you what I'm going to try to say, and then we'll go through it so that if I don't say it actually, you'll know what I was meaning to say. Is that fair? Because <laughs> I feel a little that this one is a, um, is a little bit jumbled. So this message is entitled, Give Thanks. And what I'm attempting to say is the role that Thanksgiving plays in a Christian person's life. It's a necessary component of who we are. It should be helping define how we exist. And that it's a powerful weapon against the kinds of anxieties we feel in these days and against the enemy who's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's the right thing to do to the God of all creation and the King of the earth. All right, So that's what I'm going to try to say. And then I'm going to walk through what I actually wrote here, and we'll see if we get there. So the, the scripture that we're basing this on is 1 Chronicles 16.34. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So you even see in this this one little piece that we give thanks to him because he's good by himself. His own nature is good. And we also thank him that he loves us forever. So like I said, this is a powerful weapon against the enemy and against anxiety. And the value of gratitude is not something that just Christian people believe in. This is just like a simple fact that if you Google, you know, I don't know, something like, just, just Google search the value of gratitude and you'll just see article after article of psychologists saying, like, you know, if you just practice being thankful for things, it'd really help with your depression and your whatever and all that sort of stuff. And Dallas Willard talks about that in the spirit of disciplines that this is the kind of thing that, like a, like a spiritual discipline, you have to practice doing. He says this, a spiritual discipline is a regular intentional practice or routine whose purpose is to exercise you spiritually. It's like working out your spiritual muscles so you can stay spiritually healthy. So it's not something that you just... You know, it's kind of like learning a new skill or something. Like You have to kind of practice, you know, and you get better with time, and then the effects happen. It's like getting in shape. And we have to work out the muscles of thanksgiving and thankfulness because it's kind of the default. We don't, you know. So as I'm preaching, I mean, kids, think about what are you thankful for? You know, so often in our culture these days with YouTube and all this sort of stuff, we're showing all these people that we think have everything and we have nothing, and it creates this, it just reinforces, like it's already a bad thing that humans do where we compare ourselves to other people and then we complain all the time. And now with YouTube and stuff, it's like on steroids where we go, oh man, I don't have two or three iPhones like this kid does on, you know, YouTube and blah, 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 blah. You know, so, you know, you have to war against this stuff, you know. And so like last week I said, we're finding ourselves in a strange time in culture with lots of pressure from the outside. We talked about it, you know, coronavirus, the election all sorts of unrest in our society right now. And that kind of pressure puts on the outside can lead to pressure on the inside, anxiety, depression, all these sorts of things. And some of us react on the outside by getting angry at other people. Some of us react on the inside by getting angry at ourselves or getting angry at our spouse or getting angry at our kids or just getting angry or whatever or sad or, you know, all these things that aren't the fruit of the Spirit. And this is where I want to kind of draw a line because... This thankfulness that I'm talking about today is necessary, but it, we don't practice it for the sake of just feeling better about ourselves, okay? So I'm going to take a pause here. I'm going to explain this piece because this is crucially important. Um, the truth is the act of practicing thanksgiving and thankfulness takes our eyes off ourselves and puts them on God. That's really the point here, okay? It's not that we you know, dwell in 
our sense of what's going on, our sense of what we don't have, our sense of whatever we're going to complain about, and everybody here it's different, so it doesn't matter. It's to put our eyes back as they should be on God, and then the rest starts to take place. So that you do become joyful, you do become happy, but that's not the point. See, here's the thing. Um, a lot of times we encounter a bad situation or something, we want to fix it, but we like to fix things our way. And as American Christians or Christians in general, we tend to like to fix things our way with God involved, which I was going to argue is probably worse. Because God, in, hold on, this speaker's making a noise. It's driving me crazy. Sorry, guys. Ugh. All right. The, uh, if you're going to try to fix things yourself, you're trying to fix things yourself, that's fine. You know, I would say it probably won't work, but it's fine. When, as Christian people, we think we have an understanding of God, and we think that we can just kind of partially involve God in some sort of fixing of things our way, it doesn't work. And we're going to look at a story here that it kind of explains that. And I would say it's worse than just trying to fix things yourself. God can't be part. He must be all. About 15 years ago, some sociologists did a study of what young people at the time believed religiously. It wasn't exclusively Christian, but it was in America. It was mostly kind of Christian-oriented, I, I would say, and they came up with a term. They said that these people aren't believing anything Christian or, these, or any, really anything that's any other religion, if you will. They just kind of cherry-picked out portions of these things and made a new kind of set of beliefs, which these people called moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, Those are big, big words, so I'll explain them. Moralistic means it has some sense of right and wrong. Like, it's, ba- like you, it's not just anything goes. There's some sense of right and wrong to what everybody seems to be believing. Now, let me pause again. This is a study, so they asked thousands of people, what do you believe, and then they analyzed that. Nobody did what I just said, like, like when going through the grocery store of religions. And like, oh, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit. I mean, maybe somebody did, but that takes quite a lot of intention, and, in, like, most people aren't doing that, okay? So when we're talking about the mass of everybody, what, what do we actually believe and what are we thinking that we're actually talking about? They come at us in different weird ways, you know. So, moralistic means some sense of right and wrong. Therapeutic means that it has benefits to us. Like, it makes me feel better to pray, so that's why I pray. That's not why we pray, okay? You do feel better when you pray, but the reason for doing it isn't just that we feel better, okay? We need to be God-oriented, not self-oriented. This is the issue that we're dealing with. And then the deism, there's some sort of God involved, okay? So... They put out five points they thought kind of defined this moralistic, therapeutic deism. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Christians believe something like that. God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other. God wants things like that. As Christians, we believe that. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Mm. Mm. God has no problem with that, but that's not when you say central goal. This is where you start to get off, okay? God, number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. No. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Also no. So what you see in this is a belief system that I'm going to stand here and tell you I think a lot of people who say they're Christians in America actually believe this. And that's scary and sad and wrong. And and I repent and we repent as a church for anything we've done to encourage that because that's not going to get you that doesn't save that doesn't this just doesn't work you know you'll 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 always it's like on the shore of the ocean 
and you're never quite getting in, you're just dabbling in it. You understand what it smells like. You can feel the water a little bit. You understand, you've seen enough of it to know it's real, but you're not swimming. You see what I'm saying? And with Christianity, following Jesus is following Jesus, not make up a list and decide how that will go, you see? Because Jesus is going to follow, because this type of faith is not Christianity, and it's not, it's not, even though it's not entirely in conflict with it, okay? Because like, you can say, well, we believe most of these things in some way, and I'd go, yeah, we do, but there's the other half, or the rest of it, or maybe most of it that we're leaving out, and we've distilled it into these things which aren't maybe central values. Like, again, God wants us to be happy and love ourselves. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to, so to be living under the greatest commandments is loving God fully and loving your neighbor fully as you love yourself. So you've got to love yourself, love others around. So he, like all these things can be sort of found in there, but the source of them is God, Jesus God, and you can't do it by yourself. And so this type of faith, I think, is centered on ourselves and not on Jesus. Again, it's like, what can I get out of this? And the type of faith is common among a lot of people who consider themselves Christian. This type of faith doesn't really work. It does not produce thankful people, and it won't prepare you for this type of thing. First Thessalonians 5.18, this is where it says, Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you and who belong to Christ Jesus. I want to read that again. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. How do you think this list of five things is going to prepare you to do something like that? Like that's a statement like, this is a commandment. Be thankful in all circumstances. And that should make sense if you're a Jesus follower, okay? If we're a moralistic, therapeutic deism follower, you go, whoa, what about when I'm not happy about it? Whoa, you know? And I'm not saying disregard your emotions. Like, I get it. Life is difficult. But we're, we have to really work hard, especially as in the modern church. And it's just not like a new thing. But, like, again, with YouTube and stuff, this stuff gets on steroids. These ideas can pollute our mind from what we actually think following Jesus is like, and then when it doesn't work, we get confused and blame God, and I'm going to get into this story about it. And if you want some more of this, because like, we have to be careful, because a lot of our culture, Christianity, following Jesus has been around, specifically following Jesus for at least 2,000 years, and then the greater story thousands of years before that, through the Israel and the Hebrew people and this whole thing that we're grafted into. So there's a lot of time for us to have cultural... Uh, not baggage necessarily, but our culture can, like an American culture can have a lot of Christian contours to it or coloring and not be Christian at all. But it's because 150 years ago, well, a lot of Christian people thought this, so we, we adopted this as a federal holiday or something like that. And then it kind of morphed into this other celebration. You see, but it's not just that. Like you can find in the church a lot of contours that sound Christian and they're not at all. And you've got to be really careful about that. And I'm talking about here or anywhere else. It's, it's, it's something we have to be very on guard about. And if you want some, some thoughts on this that are relevant and current, I, I recommend checking out a po- podcast called This Cultural Moment. And specifically, they have an episode called The Secular Salvation Schema. And they talk about how even people who say they're non-believers still follow this, this uh, kind of arc it's based off the Christian salvation. It's just they've replaced everything with other... Because it's so ingrained in the culture of Western humans that we, you know, we can't let that go. We're just going to replace God with you know, self and then replace salvation with happiness. And, so, you know, and then you go, oh my gosh, this is explaining something. You know, so check that out. This cultural moment, highly recommended.
But when I say about getting our eyes off ourselves and us fixing our own problems, I'm just going to read you these two scriptures. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him, him is Jesus, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is not self-oriented, but we're in there. You see what I'm saying? So it's not to say, throw us out. For God so loved the world, he doesn't throw us out. But it's not, we aren't to be self-oriented, we're to be him-oriented. Let me read another one. Revelation 1, 5 and 6. And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his, God, serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. See, Jesus is the King and Lord, and anything less than that in our lives is some sort of conception or maybe drifting into this therapeutic deism or something like that. It's not Christianity. It's some other thing. And so if what I said is true, which I think it is, many of us, some of us listening online, maybe some of us in this room, Maybe someone found this years from now, if it's still on the internet, I don't know, are actually living a faith that is in fact this moralistic, therapeutic deism, and we go, well, how do I get from that? Like, you've convinced me that's what I'm doing. How do I get from that to this revelation of Jesus and who he is, or God, and what, you know, how do I do that? And I want to look at this story from where this uh, First Chronicles 16 verse comes from, and I think it'll give us a little bit of a picture, because what we have here, First Chronicles 16, where he says, uh, put that back up. Give thanks. Wait, the, yeah, just the just the one though. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good; His love endures forever. So leave this up here. So where where do we find this in the Bible and what's happening when this is happening? And we'll go back from there and then go forward. So in First Chronicles sixteen, this is um, a piece of a psalm, which we're going to read the whole thing at the end. That David is writing to celebrate the installation of the Ark of God's presence back in Jerusalem. This is a big deal. When you say Ark of God's presence, that means big deal, okay? So the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones, it's kind of the idea. There's a golden box. that When God has started this process of restoring all things, which he's still in the process of doing, and he says, okay, I'm going to select these people, these Hebrew people, to bring salvation to the world through, and I'm going to start this process. And at one point he says, okay, I'm going to allow my presence to rest with you. And one of the key components of this, he designs a tabernacle, he designs a temple that they build, and it has different pieces that foretell what Jesus is going to do and all that sort of thing. And then one of the pieces is the Ark of the Covenant over which God's presence rests. It's a big deal. He says, put these specific things in it, handle it this way. I want it. I mean, you can read it. It has these dimensions. I want it this many dimensions by this many dimensions. I want it made out of this kind of wood. I want it covered in gold. I want two angels on top of it. All of this stuff is important. And you see, like, when Jesus is resurrected, the same angels appear, you know. And then, and again, like, I don't want to get too bogged down into this, but the ark of God's presence is such a huge deal because we weren't connected with God anymore. And God isn't here. And all of a sudden, he is here, and he's resting right there over this box. 
And you sure as, you know, you better respect and you go, why did God do that? It's because he wanted to. And then later you start to see God's presence is resting fully. Again, this is an image here, is resting in Jesus fully. And then the crazy, crazy part of it, if you start reading Paul's words in Romans, and then you have like this in Colossians 1, 27, you have this. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has the audacity to make us like the ark of his presence and fill us with his Holy Spirit. You might think, well, yeah, duh. That highly distorts the significance of this. This is the ark of God's presence. Romans talks about your body being the temple. The temple had rules. And if you went in the wrong place, you might get killed. Because God is that serious. Remember what I said about taking God serious last week? Take God serious, don't take ourselves so seriously. Take God serious, don't take ourselves so seriously. Don't devalue us. God gives us value because he says so. I love you, that gives you the value. You see what I'm saying? God doesn't love things that don't have value. He loves you, you have great value. But you can't distort this thing to say, of course God's Holy Spirit should dwell in me because I deserve it. We don't deserve it. His Holy Spirit dwells in, it, in us because he's a, it's a gift. And it's as serious as the Ark of the Covenant. We'll come back to that another time. But anyway, they don't have this with them in Jerusalem. David says, let's go get this. If you look back, and you can go back and read this in like 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll move back forward to 16. They go, let's go get God. Let's bring him in. They get people. They start a celebration. They put the box on a cart, and they start moving it. And everybody's happy because God's involved, right? We've got God's presence. It's on a cart. But then one of the oxen stumbles, and the box jostles, like, and a guy sticks his hand out to stable it, stabilize it. And he gets killed. God kills him for taking his name, like, for disrespecting the whole thing. And we'll get into why, but David is shocked by this. I'm going to read you this. First Chronicles 13, 11 to 13. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. That's the guy who touched the box, right? And this day, the place is, and to this day, this place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And then, okay, so I'm going to save it for this image, for this story today. This is a more us-oriented Let's go get the box, right? Is this good with everybody? Let's go do it. Let's go do it. They go get it, and they go get it their way. It's not even necessarily a bad way. They put it in a cart. That's not a bad idea. But God said, don't do that. And he said, carry it. He also says not to touch it. And it's all written down, and they should have known that. And they didn't know that, or they didn't. I don't know. I don't know why they did what they did. But then God does what God does and strikes a guy down for touching it. And here's what happens with David. So... We're going to do something. We feel like it's good. It's of the Lord, you might say, or if you want to use church language or something like that. And then we do it our way, but we want God involved because we're church people. We want God involved. So we bring him along in the cart. The cart stumbles. Oh, don't want God to fall. I'll catch it. And then you end up dead. And so here's the thing. This happens. In this situation, is God wrong? 
the answer is no. So, <laughs> and this is, the, this is what happens with David. So David's doing something his way with God, like I said, you can't do. He's trying to have the presence of God his way. They, you know, it's like how we want to have the presence of God my way to deal with my issues, okay? And when we do that, it ends in death. And then David is angry with God because his situ- the plans got messed up and it didn't work out. And it says David was afraid of God. So now it's this weird, com- com- this weird mixture of fear and anger. And I can, you can see even in, um, I don't have the verses marked here, where he says, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? That's self-oriented there. I'm not saying he's bad. Look, David is great. David is awesome because David's honest. He's a man after God's own heart. I think David's really great. But in this one, they messed up. How can I bring the ark of God to me? So they don't. They, t- they set it aside. He's like, we'll figure this out in a minute. But then there's warring people next door. The Philistines are like, hey, we better go deal with this David guy because he's, you know, taking care of business. So David's like, uh, God, should we fight these people? And he's like, yeah, I'll defeat them for you. And he does. And there's a whole story about hearing marching in the treetops and this whole kind of thing. So now David's had a situation where he doesn't understand, you know, doesn't, you know, maybe we didn't take God seriously. I don't know. You know, but then he's like, well, God, look, these people are attacking us. What do you want me to do? And he's like, yeah, take, well, I'll take care of this. So I think he's kind of gone through a journey now of maybe taking God for granted a little bit, even though it was well motivated. We want the ark of God's presence with us, don't we? Most Christian people would say, of course we want that, you know, but we don't go full extent of doing it God's way. We want to do it our way. We don't even always notice that that's what we're doing because we're so excited about God's presence. And no one around us is telling us it's a bad idea. They all said it was a good idea, like the people around David said it was. Like nobody said, hey, stop, wait a minute, there's like a book here. We need to follow the instructions. They're just like, yeah, this is great. So we're all excited. We want God's presence, and then it ends in death. That's sobering because you think you're motivated by all these great things, but what you're doing is something dangerous and wrong that's actually offending God. We have to be careful with that. And so, <clears throat> so here you have this um, situation, which is like, uh, now I'm afraid and angry at God, but now I need him because these people are coming to attack me. What do I do, God? And God tells him to do something. He does it and it works. He's like, okay. And then immediately goes to the f- chapter 15 and it says, okay, here's what they do to bring the ark in. And if you look at it, it's like a list. They're like going, okay, let's get the right people here according to the instructions. And you guys are going to consecrate yourself like God said to. And then we're going to carry it in like God says to do. And then there's a big celebration about it. And so I think that David went through a faith or Thanksgiving journey the same sort of way that we do. And you can see it in the psalm that he writes to celebrate once they get the ark in. I mean, it's a big celebration. They have a huge celebration. And David, who's the king, and he's he's serving like a priest. He's also like, you know, like a Levite. He's singing and dancing, and he dances before the ark. But you can see, and then when they put the ark in its place, he has this psalm that they all sing. But you can see echoes of this journey throughout this psalm, which we're going to read in the end, the whole thing. But I can see his mind process. This is why I say I like David, because he doesn't, he's honest. He doesn't try to hide the fact he messed up. He also doesn't try to run from it. He deals with it. And he also leaves us a trail to follow that's helpful. It's good songwriting, if anyone's paying attention. But his, so I see this. In First Chronicles 16, 19 through 22, which is in the middle of it, he says, 
um, when we were but a few in number, he's talking about Israel here, few indeed and strangers in it. They wandered from nation to nation, one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. See, remember, David just got delivered in a fight by God. And for their sake, he rebuked them. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. This is what God was saying to other people about Israel, okay? And I hear in that an echo of him. <laughs> do not touch what God says do not touch. That goes for everybody. You see what I'm saying? Including when you're reaching out to steady God's presence in a cart that shouldn't have been there in the first place. You don't touch what God says not to touch. It's remembering God's holiness. I see this, oh, this holiness of God, which has been there the whole time. I'm just reminded of it. And he's remembering fear. You can see in 1 Chronicles 16, 25, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Not fear as in like a scary boogeyman, but fear as in God can do whatever God wants. And he doesn't have to ask your permission or mine to do it. That's scary. And David's honest about that. But he's also remember God giving victory. He's just gone through a, a battle with people, and they won because of God. And he says, ascribe, in 1 Chronicles 16, 28, Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And so he walks through this complicated situation with God, wanting God's presence his way, um, leading to death, processing, needing God again. God comes and delivers him, and he ends up in a place of radical thanksgiving. And that path is what God takes us through very often. But thanksgiving is a choice. David's life was, with God was as complicated just like ours. He was angry at God. He was afraid of God. But he chose to trust God in the time when he needed him. He chose to give thanks. By that choice, he gained a new right perspective. And once he had that godly perspective, he couldn't help but dance and celebrate and write these words. So what happens is they're bringing the ark in and they're singing and they're singing. And they're celebrating, and they have instructions, like, you guys play all these instruments, like we do. You know, play all these instruments. They were different instruments, but whatever. You know, they're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. And David's out there in front, and he's dancing, which is, like, not cool for the king to do. And he's not wearing all of the clothes that he should be wearing. And so, but he's so thankful for what God has done and who God is and this revelation of who God is in his life that he doesn't care because that's what happens when you realize who God really is and how much he truly loves us. In spite of being able to do whatever he wants, he loves every single one of us intimately and personally. And that's so amazing and overwhelming that you can't help but be excited about it. And David can't help but be excited about it. And he celebrates. But his wife was watching and if you read the parallel story of this in 2 Samuel, when he comes back to that, it's like, man, it's like we, we did it right. I mean, I finally understand who God is. God is this is awesome. God is God, and that, that just frees everything. Like, I mean, gosh, I mean, like, God is God, and the government isn't. God is God, and our taxes aren't. God is God, and our job isn't. God is God, and our school isn't. Jesus is Lord, and the president isn't. Jesus is Lord, and... Hollywood isn't Jesus. It doesn't matter. Like, it's like whatever is plaguing your mind, Jesus is Lord, and your opinion of yourself isn't. It doesn't matter. That's freedom if you can get there. And they set the thing up, and it's great, and they read this psalm that we're going we're gonna to read. And then he goes home, and his wife's mocking him. 
And so here's the deal, guys. Just because you can experience this with God, which I pray to God that you will, doesn't mean everybody around you is going to like it. In fact, if you go by this story, they probably won't. And so um, she mocks him, and he's so confident by this point. <laughs> she's like, look what you did. You embarrassed yourself in front of everybody. Like, they think, they think you're, you know. It's the same words the enemy says to us. What will people think? Who do you think you're going to look like? You look like a fool. <laughs> and his response isn't like, well, it was worth it, which would be okay. And it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, you're right. That was a mistake, which would be bad. His response is like, you want to see foolish? <laughs> Come back tomorrow, and I'll show you what foolish is going to look like. He doubles down on it. And that's the kind of confidence that can come only through a revelation of who Jesus is. But here's the thing. His wife has, has no, ch- no children after that. So she despised him, which despised, that, that, I don't know the Hebrew root word there, but that's a very specific word in English, not just hate, but hate and look down on, you know. Not like I just don't like you, but I don't like you and think very low of you. She despised him. What I would say, it's a verb, okay? And I would say, well, here's here's the actual definition, to feel contempt or deep repugnance for. Repugnance is like looking at me. I would say prophetically to you that when you despise people, you become childless. And I don't mean literally childless. Like if you're praying for God to bring... A child, that's, that's, this, use this as, a, this as a metaphorical image, but your life will become childless. Your spiritual life will be childless. There's no life in when you're despising people. Despising them, hating them and looking down on them, which is, a, which is like a pastime in our current culture, <laughs> is to hate and look down on those people that don't agree with us on whatever the subject is today. But Christian people, people following God, people who have a revelation of who God is, who Jesus is, Don't live that way. We're celebrating in the midst of these situations. But some people will despise us and we'll even love them. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Band, come on up here. We're going to sing a song at the end. And so if we take our eyes off ourselves, put them on God, and practice through the practice of thanksgiving, we start to stack up a list, not only of how good God is, but of our real situation. So often we're distorted. We, we see things from this perspective that's so limited, so limited that it's just not useful for making any sort of real situation. God's perspective is useful. And we find ourselves um, basing major decisions major beliefs, major thoughts about God and who God is on not who he actually is and what he's actually doing, but on this very limited perspective that we have about what's going on. And when we turn our eyes from ourself towards God and start to practice being thankful, everything changes even if nothing changes. That's how you can be thankful in all circumstances. Because sometimes, because of that change, Things actually do change. And I mean, like, really change. Like, you get a different job, you know, or you find a different place to live or something like that. But 
way more often than not, you are simply adjusting back to what God is saying is going on anyway. Because thanksgiving is a surrender to God on his terms. Not trying to live with God on our terms, which leads to death and despair. Or makes us despise other people. Bree, would you come up here? I was going to have Asaf read this. One of our elders in our church is named Asaf. And this this psalm is, uh, it says, for Asaf. I was like, hey, could you read that? But then he, they didn't end up being able to make it today because of his sickness. And it's kind of long, but I'm going to have Bree read this because you read out loud well, right? I didn't tell her until right now. So, um, but she'll do great. And, uh, and then after she reads this, at the very end, okay, she's going to read this long thing, starting here all the way down, okay? At the very end, I want everyone to stand while we read this. It's the same sort of thing about, like, honoring God's holiness. Let's stand to honor his word. She'll read this, and at the very end, the last part says this, Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And, this is, and then all the people said, Amen, praise the Lord. And it'll be on the screen. But when we say all the people said, we all say together, amen, praise the Lord. All right? And then we'll sing this song. So I'm going to hand this to you. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he, he pronounced. To your, uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> the judgments he pronounced, you his servants, the descendants of Israel, the chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promises he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For before him, oh sorry. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the seas resound. Oh, sorry. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. 
Let them sing for the joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, our God, our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, Amen, and praise the Lord.